Nyhetsveckan med Ingrid och Maria. Everybody, welcome to another special edition of Nyhetsveckan, Newsweek special number 34. My name is Maria Selander and uh, with me as always my colleague Ingrid Karlqvist. Hello, hello. Today Ingrid, we have a very, very special guest, uh, Mr. Gonzalo Lira. Welcome to the show, Gonzalo. Thank you very much for having me on, ladies. It's a real pleasure. And hello to everyone in Sweden listening to the broadcast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, you um, Could you be so kind as to give our audience a short introduction as to who you are and your background and also tell us where you are at this moment in time and, and why? Sure. I live in Kharkov, Ukraine. Uh, and right now it's the middle of the siege of Kharkov by uh, Russian troops. I live here because... Um, my, my wife is from this region, and uh, we have two small children, but they are no longer here. They're in the West, and I'm staying here to see this uh, war through to see how it goes. Uh, I am a uh, writer by trade. I studied history and philosophy in university, and uh, I worked in Hollywood uh, in the uh, late 90s, and then wrote uh, some novels that were published by major publishers. And then from there, I just moved on to different businesses and just... Uh, just exploring different things in life, you know, yeah. and uh, this, this war has been uh, uh, quite, the, um, quite the experience. Uh, my family is from Chile, and I know in, in Sweden, you all have a lot of experience with Chileans, and, and that is something that we in Chile talk about <laughs> quite a bit, to tell you the truth, and we'll yeah. get into that, I'm sure. Yeah, and, because um, that, is so, that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. You actually did a couple of years ago, but someone put it out just a week ago or so. Mm-hmm. You did video mm-hmm. about Sweden, and you were really uh, upset about uh, Swedish politicians calling our country a humanitarian superpower. <laughs> tell me a little yeah, bit about I, that. Well, yeah, I, I think that... Um, you see, the, the, the Christian value of charity, it seems to me, is a very important uh, value. But you should never fall for the sin of pride insofar as your altruism is concerned. And it's always struck me, and, and I don't mean any disrespect to you, kind ladies, but, uh, but it's it always struck me that Sweden tends to view altruism through a, a lens of pride and hubris. Because what happened is that in Chile, uh, in 1973, there was a coup d'etat against the um, Salvador Allende regime. That was a Maoist Leninist regime that was uh, intent on persecuting people and, 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 and frankly liquidating them in a very uh, nasty way. And anyway, they were overthrown. The Allende regime was overthrown by the uh, dictator, uh, Augusto Pinochet, the military at the time. And um, Sweden at that time in 1973, uh, through the Swedish uh, 
consulate or embassy, uh, I, I forget which one, they, they put out a, a, um, a statement that they would accept all uh, Chilean political refugees and they would transfer them to Sweden. And, and what happened was, and we in Chile were shocked by this because what happened was that there were some political dissidents who took uh, Sweden up on their offer, but there were a great number of criminal elements, quite frankly, who took up Sweden's offer. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, we saw uh, from afar, of course, how uh, Sweden had imported a, uh, a criminal underclass. And of course, the Pinochet regime made no effort whatsoever to stop Sweden. On the contrary, uh, uh, because, you know, someone else's uh, loss is their gain. And, and it struck us that Sweden, in its uh, you know, very understandable desire to, quote, do the right thing and, and you know, help people, uh, had created a, a situation for itself that would find very, very much to its detriment. Now, what has happened to us in Chile is that we are, whenever we talk about Sweden, we are at once um, amused and embarrassed because we know that in Sweden, Chileans have a very, very bad reputation because of this uh, criminal underclass that was imported into Sweden. And so, you know, whenever any Chilean who is not a criminal, who's just a regular businessman or tourist goes to Sweden, they're always looked askance in, in Sweden. And we know this, we're perfectly aware of it. And, and we're embarrassed by it, sure, but at the same time, we find it very funny because Sweden created this problem for itself, which as I understand it, the, uh, the, uh, this Chilean criminal underclass has caused considerable headaches to Sweden over the years, over the decades. And uh, well, in 2000, what was in the early 2010s and, and onward, Sweden decided to import an enormous number of uh, migrants and they really weren't political refugees. They were really economic migrants from Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. And it seems from afar that this has created enormous problems for Sweden. Whereas I understand it, one in 10 people in Sweden are these uh, migrants and they cause a great deal of problems. I mean, here we're getting, here in Ukraine, we're getting reports that um, Ukrainian women with small children were, were harassed by some Somalis who were trying to break mm. in and potentially sexually assault these women and children. Mm. And it's, uh, it's just horrifying. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and we, 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 in Chile at least, and perhaps in other countries, we ask you, <laughs> what were you guys thinking? You know, I, I'm not saying this in, in a... In a in, I, I understand the concept of trying to help your neighbor, of trying to help others, others less fortunate. But there comes a moment when helping others is to your detriment, to your serious detriment. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I suppose, you know, um, and I know that this is not just limited to people from Chile. There are people from other countries who also express concern and, and confusion as to why Sweden consistently seems to, in the name of helping others, which is, a, like I said, a, a wonderful thought, a... a, a something to be proud of, something to, to aspire to, to help others. But in the name of helping others, you are deliberately harming yourselves and creating a, 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 uh, creating a permanent problem for yourself. But the, uh, that's what it looks like from the outside. Well, why do you think uh, the Swedes do this? I mean, you called it the arrogance of altruism. Uh, mm -hmm. 
what's the what's the thinking behind this is it some kind of we call it titanic nationalism nationalism sometimes well, you know where, where you think you're so mm -hmm. arrogant and you you think that you can do anything we we are so great we yeah. can help anyone no matter how many they are no matter where mm -hmm. they come from sweden is so great we can we can handle anything it's is that your thinking uh, regarding the no, reasoning uh, behind this yeah, well, I, it seems uh, several things. Now, I, I've never lived in Sweden. I've never even been to Sweden. The closest I've been to Sweden is Copenhagen. So that doesn't count. Okay. Uh, but from what I understand from the outside, uh, I understand that you in Sweden have a term called the tunnel or the hallway or something like that, the, the acceptable range of opinion. The opinion tunnel. Be, sure. The opinion the corridor. Opinion corridor, yep. yeah. The corridor, corridor yes, mm. correct, yes. Um, and it seems that that is a very dangerous thing. Because when you have a reduced window of, of acceptable opinion, it's very easy for that reduced window to be manipulated in different directions and to label anything outside of that window uh, simply unacceptable and, and you cannot consider it. And right. people, for different reasons, will move that window, if it's, especially if it's a very narrow window. In, in English, in American <laughs> English, it's called the Overton window, yeah. the, the range of acceptable opinion. Mm -hmm. And it seems that Sweden has a very narrow uh, 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 corridor, you call it, mm -hmm. uh, opinion corridor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is a serious problem. I think also, um, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to you ladies or your audience, but it's arrogance. It's arrogance to think that you are so superior that mm -hmm. you can come down from heaven and solve everybody else's problems. Yeah, mm. I mean, that's what Maria was calling. Yeah, and that's yeah. what Maria was calling the Titanic nationalism. You know, it's like this. Uh, we always say that we are not nationalists. No, 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 we're not. But mm -hmm. deep inside, we are very, very nationalist. We actually know that Sweden is the best country in the world. But if you right. know that, if you know you're the best, you're not supposed to brag. So therefore, we pretend that, no, this country is nothing. <laughs> but deep inside, we get very upset when the people who come here don't understand that we are the best country in the world. So, you know, but let me tell you, the Swedish people never wanted this mass immigration. And it's actually now 30% of the population that have some kind of oh, foreign background yeah. in the country that used to be the most homogenous in Europe. So this is a huge change for us. And finally, now people are waking up, but we never wanted it, but they never let us have uh, anything to say about it, you know, because all the political parties, they wanted this. Even the conservatives, which is so stupid because the, so the social Democrats have actually been importing people to vote for them. That's what they started mm -hmm. with in 1973 yeah. with the Chileans. And now mm -hmm. they, they bring on people from, you know, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan. It's crazy. They, they will yes. never fit into our society. No, and, and also... Uh well, you have also other problems that are going on. First of all, you, you have imported the psychosis of the Americans insofar as minority populations. And this has mm -hmm. happened across Europe, that, that you, you, uh, you are unwilling to accept the fact that different people from different races and different cultures are going to think and act differently and have radically different priorities. You, you are just, because it's an American problem, uh, because of, of the issue of slavery and the, and the black population in the United States. And so 
you you have that psychosis of, of insisting that you want to you know have a melting pot where this uh, foreign population is 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 melted into is blended into your local culture, and especially the people that you have been importing have radically different cultures. Like mm-hmm. I said with the Chileans, okay, I am Chilean, all right, and so. Uh, uh, I am telling you, the people that you imported, the vast majority of them, not all, but the vast majority of them were criminals. The, <laughs> the crime rate in Chile dropped because of this, of, this, uh, of this policy. And they weren't that many, but they were enough to change uh, 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 the, the criminal... The, the net. Hello? Yeah, hello. You disappeared yeah. for a moment, but uh, you're back. Um, no, yeah, uh, um, Yeah, somebody is, is, yeah, sorry, am I there? Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Okay. No, like I was saying, the, the, the crime rates fell in Chile <laughs> because of this situation. Okay. And so it, it, it is, is like, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I'm, I lost a little bit my train of thought because of something that happened here, but it's no big deal. Yeah. And so the And issue you know- becomes, uh, how do you solve this? How do you, mm-hmm. how do you fix mm-hmm. this problem? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. If, uh, I don't know how you fix this problem, but but do you think there could be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, plan behind all this? I mean, the no. the, 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 no. the thing you're talking about now, uh, the, the various minorities, and 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 could could there be some kind of idea that that someone or or some people want to to turn? Uh, various uh, minorities against each other or, or, or men against women, blacks against white, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. straight people against gay people and so forth uh, because mm-hmm. of the old, uh, you know, uh, divide and conquer thing. Yeah, no, I don't think that it's any premeditated plan like a grand conspiracy, okay? Because grand conspiracies never work. What happens is that multiple people, multiple groups of people find uh, advantage in a particular policy. Uh, for instance, you were talking about the various political parties that got uh, electoral advantage by importing foreign populations who would vote for them. So they obviously have a rationale for this. And then there are other people who uh, would also want to import foreign uh, foreign uh, uh, people because they get cheaper labor. And so, you know, the, the upper classes, which, uh, you know, the upper classes, the industrial classes, the capitalist classes, uh, that is conservative party donors, would be happy to import cheap labor from Somalia, from the Middle East, from wherever. And so they push for mass immigration as well, along with the left-wing parties, because it benefits them as well. Right. Now, you, you do have to keep in mind that feminism is a, um, it is a capitalist project. It is a project deliberately designed from the get-go, from the 1960s to drive down the price of labor, especially in those value-added businesses, those brain-intensive businesses. Because a woman and a man physically are going to be different. You will never find a woman who works on an oil field, as a a field engineer on on an oil well. You will never or you will rarely find a woman who's a bricklayer or who is a sanitation worker because it is physically demanding. But you will find lots of women who are lawyers, lots of women who are doctors, lots of women who specialize in those professions that demand brain power, because nobody's claiming that women are less intelligent than men. They're equally intelligent. And that's the thing. That's the advantage. And so 
the capitalists uh, encourage women to join the workforce because it drives down the price of labor. Mm-hmm. And so, especially in those expensive professions like the law, like medicine, like accountancy, uh, those expensive professions, I mean, because a sanitation worker, you're not paying him that much. Let's just pause it for the sake of argument. You're paying him 20, 30 euros an hour, uh, yeah, or, or less, perhaps. I don't, frankly, I don't know what the wages of a, of a, of a set to worker are. But a lawyer who's charging 200, 300 euros per hour or more, well, then it's worthwhile to try to encourage women to go to law school. And here's the problem. It's that for women, they're, um, they are miserable. That's the bottom line issue. They're absolutely miserable because it is very exciting and very fulfilling when they're in their early 20s and their mid-20s. But then they get to their late 20s and into their early 30s. And they discover that they do not have children. They do not have a family of their own. And women, we like it or not, by evolution or by God, you, you don't have to go on either side of the divide on, on the issue of God, whether because God designed it this way or evolution designed it this way or, or evolved it this way. Women want to have strong emotional bonds with the people in their lives. They need that. They need that existentially. And since they don't have it because a company, a law firm, a hospital, a whatever, is never going to give that kind of emotional sustenance to a woman, Mm. but a family of her own will, all of a sudden she's in her early 30s, her mid 30s, her late 30s, 40s, 50s, no family, and completely miserable living on a steady diet of antidepressant pills because she is dying inside because she has no none of those necessary strong emotional connections that a woman who decided to forego a career has when she has children of her own with a family of her own. And, and, you are absolutely and, right, and this, Gonzalo. And yeah. we will not argue with you about it. We totally share your opinions on this. We always try to tell young, young um, women to have a family before it's too late. And, and yeah. My daughter, my, my, the daughter of my heart, she's not really in mine because I could never have any children, but she, mm-hmm. she came into my life when she was four or five and she's the daughter of my heart. I always tell her she's mm-hmm. 26 years old and she's waiting for her second child right now. So I'm so happy. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and what happens is that she's probably far more fulfilled and happy than a woman who is 26 and has nothing but a career. Uh, because it's very obvious a career will never smile at you a never a career will never you know give you a little hug okay and and it, it sounds trivial and if you ask most parents most parents on any given day are are kind of sick and tired of the kids because they're annoying <laughs> i have small children so i know what i'm talking about right but the thing is see the momentary dissatisfaction is nothing compared to the long term satisfaction and happiness that a family of one's own gives. Yeah. And, and of course, this all goes from, from long before from industrialization. I mean, we, we, can, we can really go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution that uh, fomented the notion of separating oneself from one fami- one's familiar unit, you know, from the, not just the, the nuclear family, but the extended family and the, uh, the long-term extended uh, relationships with other families that one would have in like a small village or town. Uh, 
which are so essential. And in Latin America, we're fortunate enough to enjoy such relationships still up to a certain extent because of various historical reasons that aren't relevant for this conversation. But the point is, see, in so much of Europe and certainly in the United States, people move away from their hometown or, or where they were born. And they go to some strange place because of work or because of education, because of the university they have to go to. And after that university, the, the job that will hire them away in some other city. And so what happens is that they, they don't have that deep-rooted connection to the people around them. And so they feel disconnected, alienated, like, like a little jellyfish floating through the sea and terrified because living such an existence is extremely stressful. It, it is stressful to not feel that you have people who know you, around you, looking after you, if only passively, you know? When you live in a small town where everybody knows who you are, everybody knows that you're the child of so-and-so and that you're the parent of so-and-so and, you know, the sibling of these people here and there and the best friend of that other fellow over there. When people know you like that in some small town, you feel very secure yeah. because you feel that the, the, the environment, the social environment you are in, you belong and they are giving you a sense of collective security, uh, uh, a collective security, not in, in the great geopolitical sense, but the collective security of human beings, of a feeling that you belong and that the people around you will look after you if you ever get ill or injured or anything befalls you. And, I think I, and that sense that we have lost in, in, in modernity, because we've gained certain advantages of industrialization and modernity that, are, that is indisputable, but we have lost so much insofar as human connections is concerned. That's the problem, it seems to me. I think you're absolutely uh, right, Gonzalo. And, and what I am seeing and uh, what we have been seeing very clearly, I think, over the last few years is that people who are atomized in this way is, are very easy to control and very easy to sigh off yes. in various ways. Uh, yes. And now uh, segueing into the whole Ukraine situation, um, sure. uh, um, I want to talk about this because what we are seeing here in the West is uh, I have never seen uh, media reporting that is so incredibly biased as the one we are seeing mm -hmm. now. And I have never seen people so absolutely hypnotized by this reporting. I mean, these are people who are normally... Uh, dissidents who, who are used to questioning everything, who, who are very uh, doubtful about the whole uh, uh, COVID-19 narrative, they are now mm -hmm. completely convinced that uh, Putin is a raging maniac and uh, that uh, Zelensky is uh, God or uh, Batman or something. And, and, <laughs> I <know>. and <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I want to start off this uh, Ukraine uh, discussion by, by, by asking you, Uh, first of all, what are you seeing on the ground? You are in Kharkiv, I think, at the moment. Yes, in Kharkov. Yeah. Yeah, Kharkov in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. And Well, the Russians are sieging the city and they're winning. And I know that they're winning because they're getting closer every day. Yeah. Uh, I, I can hear the shelling getting closer every day. And yeah. I'm sure that during this, this conversation, you'll hear a bit of the shelling. It's no big deal. It's, it's far enough away. It's, it's at least seven kilometers from here. But okay. even at seven kilometers, seven to 10 kilometers from here, you can hear it, okay? It's quite loud. Right. Right. So <clears throat> uh, the, the issue is that um, Zelensky is a puppet, a puppet of, um, he was originally created uh, because he is a creation 
by a man called Ihor Kolomoisky, who is a uh, Ukrainian-Israeli Cypriot oligarch. He is an uh, engineer by trade, and a very smart man. I mean, none of these oligarchs are stupid, and they're all very clever and very cunning. And Kolomoisky um, created the television show, Servant of the People, in 2015, and hired Zelensky to play the role of president, a president who was pro-EU and pro-NATO. And uh, from, from the television show, which was artificially propped up because Kolomoisky owns One Plus One Media, which is the largest media firm and owns television stations here, uh, and which, of course, aired this show. And through, through various means of publicity stunts and whatnot, they propped up this show artificially to make it extremely popular. And from there, they transitioned you know, Zelensky from being a, a TV character into being an actual political candidate, crazy as that may sound. You can't you make know? this so, shit up. It's absolutely crazy. No. <laughs> yes. Do you think exactly. that Kolomoisky planned this all along? That that's why he, he made that show that he had his plans for Zelensky all along? Oh, yes. No question. Yeah. I mean, his goal from the very get-go was to install his puppet president and to push for Ukraine to join the EU and, the, um, and NATO. Mm. And, uh, and in, in the United States, um, the person most responsible for having uh, uh, Ukraine join uh, NATO and the EU and, and pushing all this was a woman named Victoria Nuland. Yeah. Now, Victoria Nuland uh, is the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and she, uh, back in 2014, was the person who was in charge of engineering the coup d'etat that overthrew the legitimate government of Ukraine, uh, of Yanukovych, and installing the, uh, you know, and doing, pulling off the Maidan Revolution. Now, the Maidan Revolution was based on, it was a color revolution. A color revolution, which, what does that mean? It's a revolution that's engineered by foreign powers, usually the United States, or actually exclusively the United States. And the way they do that is that they use non-governmental organizations that are privately funded, but all of those funds come from actually a few, very few sources. And they're all working in concert with American intelligence services. Back in 1997, some observers were saying how the NGOs were basically contractors working for the CIA to carry out the objectives of the CIA, the programs of the CIA, that before the CIA did itself, but it turned out that for political reasons and practical reasons, it was better to hire somebody, hire it out to a contracting firm, to an NGO. And so that's what these NGOs are. They are ultimately American intelligence and American uh, State Department officials. And they carried out this um, color revolution and they used uh, neo-Nazi thugs. I I'm not kidding. And, and the, the person who financed these neo-Nazi thugs was Kolomoisky. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. Uh, it, it sounds insane that a Jewish oligarch would finance neo-Nazis, but that's the kind of world we're living in, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, because at the end of the day, I figured that he thought, you know, muscle is muscle. It doesn't matter if they're Nazis, so long as they, you know, crack the heads of the people that I want to crack, I suppose, was his thinking. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, the Azov Battalion, the Iran Battalion, the uh, uh, S-14, the right sector, all of these various neo-Nazi groups, and they are neo-Nazis, right? They're not like, uh, like pretend neo-Nazis, and no. they're not like, you know, how in, in the West we call J.K. Rowling a Nazi because she doesn't agree <laughs> with the whole uh, a transgender ideology. No, no, these are actual Nazis with swastika, swastika tattoos uh, and black sun tattoos, and, you know, they, they do the, the whole Sig Heil thing. And, and yeah, they're real. They're for real. Okay. And so anyway, these people 
were the ones, they were the shock troops of the 2014 coup d'etat. And after the coup d'etat, they were allegedly dissolved. But what happened was that they were dissolved and absorbed into the national militia and the Ukrainian armed forces. And so what has happened is that the regime has been propped up by the money of Kolomoisky and by these uh, neo-Nazi fascists. And they are real Nazi fascists. Do keep in mind, I am a conservative. I don't throw around the term uh, neo-Nazi or fascist casually, okay? No. Uh, I am a, a, a very hard right conservative, but these people are animals. These, these people are true neo-Nazi fascist thugs. I mean, these are not SS, these are brown shirts. That's mm -hmm. what they are. They are Eric Romer uh, brown shirts. Okay. But the most crazy and, thing uh, about and, all this, Gonzalo, the most crazy thing is mm -hmm. that the big newspapers, even the New York Times and uh, all the Western media wrote up until this war started that they had so many problems in Ukraine with Nazis and with corruption mm -hmm. and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And now everything of this is Nothing. gone. They don't report yeah. anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that shows that, you know, these news organizations are completely corrupt. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't take them seriously at all. Uh, and, and, and anybody who does is just is just signing up to listen to propaganda. Right. The system pigs, Gonzalo. <laughs> the system pigs. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I so despise them, you know. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Me too. Go ahead. You know, we, we agree with you. You did a video about this uh, the other day where you completely uh blew the mainstream media to smithereens and uh we uh we agree with your uh, analysis that the, they are uh, many of them are uh, highly corrupt people so but still yeah, it, it, you 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 mentioned you mentioned that you both had been in the mainstream media in sweden yeah. and that you had left could, could you please tell me about that i'm very interested in that it was around uh, 2010 i think in it yeah, uh, we started to uh, I mean, we had a, a you know, a, a bad feeling about where things were going since uh, mm -hmm. I, I started uh, journalism school in 1996. It started mm -hmm. in uh, 1980. But but after mm -hmm. 2000 sometime, something shifted, mm -hmm. uh, something mm -hmm. uh, in the media felt very different. And 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 mm -hmm. uh, Inge and I both had a, a very uneasy feeling that we were asked to report not to report the truth, but to hide it in, in uh, mm. you know, more mm -hmm. and more. And so finally, we, we both quit and started doing mm -hmm. alt media instead. So and I'm very glad we did today yeah. because I couldn't live mm. with myself if, if I uh, had a job uh, that that uh, meant that I had to report lies every day. So the thing mm -hmm. is that yeah. we we started to uh, uh, freelance like in the year 2000 so we were not on the mainstream media uh, newsrooms for 10 years and then we came back i came back in 2010 to the biggest newspaper in sweden in stockholm and i worked at the night shift there and then i saw the reporters being given jobs by the bosses and they told them what the headline was supposed to be they told them that you must call these and these and these people and they are supposed to say this and this and that and i saw the reporter coming back and saying, well, you know, they didn't say those things. There is a totally different story. No, 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 no. You have to call 10 more people until you get someone who says what we want them to say. And I was just, this is not journalism. This is not what I want to do. So that's why no, it's we, propaganda. Yeah. 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 <laughs> why, what do you what do you ladies think happened? I'm very curious about this because other people are reporting more or less the same thing. And so I'm wondering what happened, you think, in those in those years? 
I think in in many uh, respects, it's a it's an issue of money, like so many other things. Uh, the mm-hmm. mainstream media started really uh, running out of money because people uh, were were uh, getting the news for free on the internet and so on, and mm-hmm. so so mm-hmm. the newspapers weren't really that important anymore. They weren't selling any. They they weren't uh, getting any uh, ad revenue anymore mm-hmm. and so um they had to to you know really uh news of the world uh, go go in that direction news of the world you know make everything really sensational and uh, and polarize things uh for profit i think that was mm-hmm. an important factor uh because mm-hmm. nobody's going to click on an article that that uh, that and that seems balanced and fair, and but not all that interesting. But the sensational stuff sells. So therefore, sure. I, I I think uh, that was an important factor. But also uh, the, the the concentration of ownership in the media has been a factor. There are like six companies in the U.S. who own everything, control everything. everything. Yes. Uh, And and there are political uh, aspects of this, of course. Uh, The owners want to drive, uh, you know, the news in a certain direction and they want to portray uh, things in a a certain light to to achieve their goals. Mm. It it seems, yeah. I know that in the late 1980s, in in the New York Times, the, the New York Times started thinking consciously that it was dictating what was important insofar as the national news was concerned. The editors-in-chief at the time started referring to the saying openly in their morning uh, editorial meetings. They would say, we give the narrative for the nation. So what are the important stories that the nation ought to know about today? Mm-hmm. Which is a very paternalistic way of looking at it, as opposed to waiting for the news to percolate so that you would realize, oh, this is important and that's important. But it was sort of like an on high, top down approach to mm-hmm. what were the topics that were important. But from there, it seemed, it, it seems that it, it, you know, during the 90s and especially into the 2000s and the 2010s, it became, you know, manipulating the news outright. And what's going on now? It's propaganda. It, mm-hmm. It's not even reality. It's just, and what's really interesting is that they talk about uh, uh, what's going on in, in Ukraine, and they are completely wrong. They, are, they right. don't know what they're talking about. You know, like, for instance, there was a story uh, um, uh, or these tweets of people insisting that one of the big problems for the Russians was frostbite. Yeah. I'm here. We're having lovely spring weather. Yeah. I, and you are in Sweden. And so you know that, you know, you're, you're used to the cold. And here it's been, the, the temperature is uh, today, it's a lovely sunny day. And actually for the last week, it's been really beautiful here. Um, and, and the temperature like has hovered like around at zero degrees, you know, uh, sometimes it floats up to, you know, plus three degrees Celsius. Mm. Uh, nobody's getting frostbite. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, you know, I, I come from Chile, right? And I'm not getting frostbite, you know, I'm perfectly <laughs> fine. I can wander around for hours on end without any gloves and I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> and so I'm like... What are you talking about? What are you I was talking just about thinking the, the, the Russian soldiers are, are collapsing because of frostbite. Yeah. I was thinking this morning when I read all those, you know, the, the news from Ukraine, little pieces, and it's just like Russia is uh, failing. They are, they are losing the war. They are getting frostbites. They don't have food or <laughs> ammunition or whatever. And I thought to myself, 
what are they going to write when Russia wins this war? What do you think? How yeah. are they going to back out <laughs> of this? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And also the thing is, see, the, the war is coming to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Because what, what has happened is that uh, for your listeners to understand the situation, what, what the, uh, first of all, you have to understand that the Ukrainians were about to invade the Donbass region. That's what triggered this invasion by the Russians. And the Russians were perfectly aware of this. And that's why all of a sudden there was all this negotiation and flying around and all the rest of it. Because the Ukrainians were amassing their soldiers on the contact line, that is the, the division line between Ukraine and the breakaway republics. And they were planning on running a lightning fast one to two day invasion of the Donbass area, the breakaway republics, which are quite small, by the way. And they were planning on taking it over. And so they had amassed a huge army in the east. And what happened was that the Russians beat them to the punch, quite simply. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. Because they were going to, the Ukrainians were going to launch this invasion uh, in mid-March. And what happened was that the Russians, uh, they, had, they had some soldiers on the border. But what they did is that they rapidly escalated the number of soldiers because they had that ability. And they essentially hit the, the Ukrainians first. And hit them a lot of times where the Ukrainians weren't. And so this created a lot of disorganization in the Ukrainian armed forces. And from there, the Russians very systematically destroyed the command and control structure of the Ukrainian armed forces. And so what has happened now is that the Ukrainian armed forces do not have a unified defense posture. They are basically broken up into various pockets. There's the Kiev pocket, the Kharkov pocket, the Mariupol pocket, and most important of all, the Kramatorsk pocket, which is in eastern Ukraine. Now, the, around Kramatorsk, the, the town city of Kramatorsk, you have about 60,000 Ukrainian fighters. Now, do keep in mind, in any army, there are, you know, support personnel and fighters. That's, that's the big dividing line. And these, uh, the, the fighters of Ukraine, those 60,000, that's basically the cream of the Ukrainian crop insofar as fighters are concerned. And they are being surrounded. And some pockets of these fighters are being annihilated as we speak. And that's the most important um, uh, uh, area of this war at this time. Mm-hmm. And these, um, th- this main grouping of the Ukrainian army, which is in the east, it has run out of fuel. It is running out of supplies, running out of uh, ammunition even. And they have no possibility of any sort of relief. They're going to collapse. It's going to take a while, of course. Mm-hmm. But the Russians are patient because the Russians are winning. Okay. And insofar as Kiev is concerned, the Russians are not going to invade. I mean, I would be very surprised if they decided to invade the city of like stage an assault and go into the city and try to take it over. I think that their plan is to simply wait, to patiently wait and uh, let Kiev fall on its own. I think that they plan on taking Kharkov and they're close to it because the army here in in Kharkov is uh, rapidly running out of options. And... um, in my own case, uh, um, the word I'm getting at this uh, juncture here, local word, is that uh, it might be the case that, well, I don't want to speak out of hand because, and I don't want to jinx it, but things might be going the Russians' way. Let's leave it at that in Kharkov. But right. the, the point is um, the Russians are decisively winning, and there's simply no way for the uh, Zelensky regime to salvage the situation unless they can pull in NATO. And that window is closing because you do have to keep in mind if NATO decided to go into this war, 
it would take quite a while for them to stage the necessary men and materiel. Okay. Yeah. And they are already kind of staging those men and that material, but it's not enough. And the Russians have an advantage, a numerical advantage. And also they have home field advantage. And they also have the advantage of having very, very sophisticated uh, air defense systems that are far more sophisticated than anything that Saddam Hussein or, uh, yeah. or Assad had or any other regime has. Mm -hmm. And so if the Americans try to impose a no-fly zone, as they keep insisting idiotically, yeah. they will be blown out of the skies by the Russians because establishing air dominance against the Russians, no, <laughs> come on, no, no, that's, that's, that's not going to happen, not, not, not realistically. Okay, and uh, the the other thing, the final thing, is that the use what what's, what I said from the very beginning, I, and I have to say, I told you so. I said from the very beginning that the Russians were going to be using up their cheapest and oldest weapons, and they were, in a very real sense, going to be using their least experienced men as kind of like cannon fodder, mm. and to hold back their best reserves, which is what they have done. And a couple of days ago, they unleashed their, the, for the first time in any military context, a hypersonic missile was fired. Yeah. And it was devastating. It scared NATO very badly. And they've gone out of their way to say, oh, no, it was no big deal. It's just, oh, it's just a fast rocket. It's no big deal. But it scared them because they claimed that they saw it coming. Although that claim is suspicious. But what is indisputable is that even if they saw it coming, they have no technology to stop it. They have, no. And it's so fast that there's no way to move out of the way before it hits. Okay. Right. And it's basically a weapon designed to kill aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. And the Russians used it very deliberately to send a message. And the message is, we will kill your carriers. We will kill your air bases. We have the power to do that. Mm -hmm. Don't mess with us. Right. And I think that, the, that NATO hopefully gets, gets the message because no. the Russians will use such weapons and it will be devastating. Right. That was my next uh, question, uh, actually. What do you think uh, is going to happen next? And, and uh, how, uh, how is this war going to end? The war is going to end one way or another with Russia winning. Right. It's inevitable. And it's right. inevitable from the very first day. It, it's, it's, because, you see... Um, If, you know, you've seen pictures of me, right? I'm a 54-year-old man mm -hmm. and out of shape and with a bum left ankle. <laughs> If I get into the ring with, uh, with Conor McGregor, mm -hmm, the, the MMA fighter, mm -hmm. you know, Conor McGregor could be drunk, you know? He's still going <laughs> to kill me, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> of course, you know? Mm. Because he's just a better fighter. And in the case of Russia versus Ukraine, right. Russia has four times, five times the soldiers It has far more weapons of every sort, and the weapons they do have are far more sophisticated and advanced. And forget about the nuclear weapons. Right. It, it, it was inevitable from the beginning. To, to think otherwise is just, you know, just fooling yourself. Right. But what, and, what kind uh, of peace deal do you see, you know, in the, at the end of the war? Oh, yeah. What will happen is uh, Medvedchuk will be installed as president of Ukraine. Medvedchuk If he's is alive, the... Gonzalo, he is disappeared. Oh, Yeah, he, he escaped from, uh, from house arrest. I think that the Ukrainians were, would probably have killed him had he remained. Uh, you know, it was, they whisked him away. He's probably in Russia somewhere. Um, because if he were dead, we'd know about it. Right. Okay? He would have come out. And so, um, no, my thinking is that uh, he will be installed as president of Ukraine. But I don't think that Ukraine, quite frankly, I don't think that Ukraine, as we know it today, will survive after this war. 
it, I think it will be chopped up into pieces. Yeah. I think that uh, the piece that will be Russia's forever is Crimea. I mean, historically, Crimea is Russian, and, and mm -hmm. all the people on the Crimean Peninsula are Russian. And so it's just ridiculous to say, oh, it's Ukrainian. No, it's not. It's always been Russian. Mm -hmm. Russian Empire fought a war with the British over Crimea. It was called the Crimean War. It's theirs. Yeah. And the fact that Nikita Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in 1954 doesn't change that fact. Right. It was just an administrative gift. It wasn't for real. Okay. And so anyway, um, <clears throat> the, my thinking at this time, and I, I don't think many people are, are thinking about this very much, but I certainly am. My thinking at this time is that the Russians will gain complete control of the entire country, all the way to Lviv. Mm. And the Poles lost after Lviv. Mm. They lost after it because it's a historically Polish city. Yeah. Mm. And there are rumors that the Poles actually want to invade Western Ukraine to grab hold of Lviv. Mm. I don't think that the Russians are going to allow this. And there are a lot of rumors that the Belarusians are about to invade Western Ukraine. Belarusians, mm -hmm. quote unquote, it's really Russians. Russians mm -hmm. working with the Belarusians. And so uh, my thinking is that um, when this is all over, the Russians will have complete control of the entire country. And I think that they will start to dangle Lviv in front of Poland. And they will say to them, well, you want, you want Lviv? You really want it? Well, give us something give us something and we'll give you what you want because Lviv is a historically important city for Poland. Yeah. Uh, remember the, the Polish nation uh, is a parallelogram that was shifted 200 kilometers to the west. Mm -hmm. Lviv is part of Poland historically. There are Poles there. I mean, ethnic Poles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the Poles will want that very badly. And that will probably split the Poles off from Europe because also Europe, yeah. the European Union, the Germans specifically, have acted very stupidly with Poland, antagonized it needlessly. Yeah. And so we might see, because of Lviv, the disintegration uh, of, of, of Eastern European Union, i.e. Poland, breaking away from the European Union. And it would be relatively easy for them because they have their own currency. Mm. And so, you know, we'll see what will happen. But, you know... There's going to be a lot of flux in Europe. I think also that Eastern and Southern Ukraine, present-day Eastern and Southern Ukraine, where I am, Kharkov, uh, Lugansk, Donetsk, um, uh, uh, Mariupol, Kherson, all the way to Odessa, I think that that will eventually become a new country, a, a new puppet mm. state, a, a small nation, and it will yep. be called Novorossiya. Uh, I don't think that it will join Russia or become, uh, maybe it will. I mean, that's for the future. Who knows? But I think that it will be separate. And that the future Ukraine will be roughly a third the size it is now with Kiev as its capital. And it will be a, a demilitarized neutral state. Um, and I think, quite frankly, that if this is done, if this partition is carried out, and if what is today Ukraine is cut up into several pieces, in 20, 30 years, all of these pieces might be much, much better off economically, socially, culturally. In every respect, mm. I think that it might be an actually good thing. But, uh, but of course, the people today don't see that. They're, they're not looking 20, 30, 40 years ahead. No. They're looking at the here and now, and they certainly don't want that. So there's going to be a lot of fighting. But the NATO, what it wants to do, I think that they've given up the ghost of actually engaging with, with Russia militarily, because I think that the NATO military commanders and the American military commanders are scared of the Russians. And with good reason, they should be. 
because yeah. the Russians will beat them. And, and what's interesting is that the Russians have, I mean, the Americans have done war games against the Russians and the Russians beat them consistently in Eastern Europe every time because mm. they have the will. They have, what, they have what it takes to win militarily mm. and they have the political uh, will and the morale. And these sanctions, by the way, they only helped Putin politically at home. Yeah. Because now he's got plus 75% of the population behind him in this war. And especially as these videos are emerging of uh, Ukraine Nazis, as they are called, beating up Roma, you know, face painting people who are ethnically Russian, painting them green and tying them up to lampposts and beating them. They tie them up, uh, they paint them up as green because they say that Russians are ogres you know, or, or orcs. That's what they are, which is really despicable. And, and just... You know, it makes the Russians in Russia pissed off, number one, and more supportive of Putin. And in the West, they have this crazy notion that the generals in the Kremlin will overthrow Putin. That's, yeah. that's insane. It's <laughs> just insane. Yeah. It's, it's not even stupid. It's just, are you, in, are you living on this planet or an alternate no. reality? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it, it's just stupid. Okay. And, and Gonzalo, uh, what about what about the Ukrainian people? I really feel for them. Uh, do they believe in all this uh, bullshit about Zelensky being Batman that he can he can win over Putin? And what are their sentiments as you see it? Well, quite naturally, they are very very nationalistic. Uh, and, and whenever your country is attacked, of course, you're going to be very nationalistic and and mm. very much opposed to the country that is invading you. Mm. And um, I'm not going to lie, a lot of people are very, very upset with me for airing these points of view. But I have to, I have to say what I think. I think, and as I see it, as the truth, you know. And 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 it's not me. How can I put it? I have enormous affection for the Ukrainian people and for the Ukrainian nation. I've crossed this country uh, multiple times on my motorcycle. I, I've been everywhere: Lviv, uh, Kiev, Poltava. Uh, all these little towns all over the place. So I, I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian, but I've gotten a good sense of it. That there are lovely people. They are wonderful, wonderful people. In many ways, they are like Russians, but softer, mm-hmm. softer and, and more uh, uh, conciliatory and more humane, perhaps not so, not so rigid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have nothing but um, the difference is very much like the same between uh, Germans and Austrians. Germans are harder. Austrians are softer, it's the same <laughs> culture, but just softer, you know, right. and, and it's very much like that. And um, maybe like and, Americans and, and Canadians, uh, Gonzalo. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. You know, mm-hmm. and so my, my, my sense is I want to prevent needless death. That, that's my priority. Mm. And when you are unrealistic and you think that your side can win a war that is unwinnable for you, you... You carry hope in your heart, and hope is a wonderful thing, but it has to be attached to realism. Yeah. And I think that all the propaganda has convinced so many young people, some, so many young soldiers mm. in Ukraine, to pursue a course of action that will only lead to their deaths, because they have a, a, a false belief that there is a possibility of winning. And one of the hard and bitter lessons of, of being an adult, and I'm sure that you ladies would agree with me on this, is that you, you have to recognize your limits and you have to realize when something, no matter how much you want it, it's just not possible. It's just right. not within the realms of the possible. And you have to accept that and it's a bitter lesson to accept, but it's necessary 
in order to survive. Right. And so it seems to me that with all this propaganda and all this nonsense of how, you know, you, you, great Zelensky, who's, he's a cokehead, by the way, he's just addicted to cocaine, and this is for real. Uh, Zelensky is so wonderful and all this, and we're going to win and all that. And so all these young people, all these young soldiers, they're going to die for nothing. Yeah. The flower of Ukrainian youth will be killed for nothing. And, and I can't think of a, a, a worse fate, you know? Right. And also what's happening is that so far we have uh, something like 6 million uh, Ukrainians have left the country. Now, these are the most educated people because they're the ones who can afford to leave, that they have the, the wherewithal to leave. And one could argue very easily that maybe 30% of those people close to 2 million Ukrainians, will never come back. And that is a loss of human capital that is irreplaceable. Yeah. And so no matter how things turn out, Ukraine will never be the same. Even if some, you know, if there was like a magician who could magically wave a wand and have the Russians completely expelled, Ukraine, as it was known, is gone forever. It will never come back, you know, and, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the Ukrainian people. And, um, and so, yeah, that's my thinking on this whole situation. And it makes me extremely sad, to tell you the truth. There's no satisfaction in, in, in seeing this destruction of this wonderful nation. But of course not. It, it course seems not. to me that the people to blame are the Western powers. And mm. they cynically used Ukraine and cynically goaded Ukraine into doing foolish things insofar as trying to invade the Donbass in terms of antagonizing the Russians. It would have been so easy to have um, come to an agreement with the Russians that was mutually beneficial between Ukraine and Russia to the benefit of both. And Ukraine would have continued, uh, you know, and, and been a prosperous country. Mm. But the West, look, the West, <laughs> there is a serious problem too. The West hates Putin because in the 90s, when Putin came to power, 99, he inherited a country that was being violated by the Western powers. They were stealing everything left, right, and center, using the corrupt oligarchs to have their way. They were, they, they were just stealing it and destroying it. And what happened was that Putin, through very wily means and very patiently and methodically, he expunged these Western financial rapists from Russia. And he also, and people don't seem to realize this, he also expunged the avaricious oligarchs. And there are other oligarchs now, but they are Russian oligarchs who reinvest their money in Russia. And the funny thing is all these sanctions against the Russian oligarchs like Abramovich and so forth, all these people left Russia and they are not welcome back in Russia. They are rich and they own lands and they own the factories in Russia, but they are not welcome there. Okay, because the, the, the Russian regime, the Putin regime, has been very clear of never stealing uh, uh, the, the assets of anyone. Okay, they arm twist you, but they're not going to steal your stuff because they think that setting that precedent is just a recipe for the disaster. And I would agree. Mm. Um, but you see, in, in Ukraine, that avaricious uh, financial rape that occurred in Russia was also occurring in Ukraine. And the thing is, see, it continued in Ukraine. In Ukraine, you did not have a figure like Putin who slowly and methodically ended that regime and created something that was a lot more, a lot less corrupt because Russia is far less corrupt than Ukraine. Ukraine is extremely corrupt. 
mm. a lot more prosperous because that's the situation in Russia now. It is much more prosperous. And Ukraine is per capita, one of the poorest, if not now the poorest country in Europe. And you see, Ukraine is what Russia would have been had Putin not yeah. started to slowly and methodically expunge the Western, the, the rapacious capitalism of the West that had, you know, had its way with Russia all during the 90s, you see? Mm-hmm. And, and it's that fact that Russia, that Putin expunged these people that earned the hatred of these people towards him that is, you know, psychotic at this point. You right. see? That, that's the situation we find ourselves in. How do, uh, I, I want to end this uh, lovely talk uh, dis- discussion uh, by asking you if you have any idea, any, any thoughts about how long this war is going to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I hope, and I could be extremely wrong, but I hope that it's over by the end of April. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that's my thinking at this point. This is assuming, of course, that NATO does not interfere. Now, NATO is trying to get weapons into uh, Ukraine to help the quote-unquote resistance. And also, there is the rumor, and this is a rumor, but the rumor is that Zelensky is no longer in Ukraine. He's actually in Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will not know, uh, but this is, this is the rumor, and, and there are some people who have presented very compelling evidence, various photographs, and saying, oh, look, see, this... Uh, this light switch, it's Polish, it's not Ukrainian and such uh, things like that, that mm. it, they make a compelling case, but we, we you know, for, for, for uh, what, what's the, the saying? For, for, uh, for amazing claims, you must have amazing evidence, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'll hold on, I'll, I'll hold out that thing. But the notion that he might be in Poland, or let me phrase this, the notion that the, the government falls and that Zelensky flees to the West, to Poland, and they set up a government in exile, that's, that's likely in the cards. I think that they've already created the conditions for that, the Americans. They've already created a mechanism to set up some sort of government in exile that will constantly challenge the government that the Russians will implement in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but I don't think that as a practical matter, it will be of any importance because see, you know, uh, uh, you know, being there is, is half the battle, right? Uh, uh, possession is uh, the better part of ownership or something like that, right? Mm. And so the Russians are going to own Ukraine. They're going to win it, okay, right. one way or the other. And they're not going to allow NATO weapons into Ukraine because the, the Russians are, are very, very good at human intelligence. And a lot of the things that have happened insofar as uh, missile strikes at uh, different uh, centers of mercenary soldiers or, or foreign volunteers, whatever way you want to call them, and weapons depots. There was an attack, uh, let me see now, a week and a half ago, mm. where they, uh, the Sunday before last, they hit a uh, depot just outside of Lviv. They destroyed $400 million worth of weapons in one yeah. shot. Mm. And so the, the Russians are very good at that. And so I don't think that realistically that that much weaponry will enter Ukraine. And because of the society of Ukraine, Scott Ritter has uh, mentioned this several times, he's a, a, an American uh, Marine and military analyst. And he said that the, the, the social composition in Ukraine is much more cosmopolitan. And so the notion of some sort of uh, resistance movement that will arise is much less likely because any such resistance movement will be much easier to compromise by the Russians 
than say in more primitive societies where the fighters all are family members and have known each other for decades. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, that, if that, such a resistance movement tries to arise in Ukraine, the Russians will be able to uh, um, to to uh, uh, to pierce it, to to uh, to basically neutralize it from the inside, mm-hmm. and so to compromise it, basically. Right. And so, I mean, it's coming out that one of the leaders of the Azov Battalion was actually an FSB agent. <laughs> Insane as that may sound, right? <laughs> That's the word that I'm hearing now. Okay. I mean, this is fog of war, so it could be completely wrong. I'm just. I'm just saying, but the Russians are very, very good at yeah. compromising at, and at, at, at piercing closed circles. Mm. And so the fact that, you know, the, the notion that they'll be able to do it in this circumstance and any kind of resistance, I think that that's highly likely. And so, you know, what am I basically saying? I think that the Russians are going to sew up Ukraine. I mean, let's put it this way. In six months, this is going to be over one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I think that the big problem that we should be paying attention to is the escalating sanctions against China. And I think that yeah. that's a good cliffhanger to leave your audience with. Yeah. Um, Indeed. The sanctions against China. Yeah. Mm. The Americans are going to continue that. And that's going to lead to uh, uh, another situation like Russia, but mm. it's going to be China and it's going to be much more damaging to the West. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, there were so many questions more that I had, but we have to stop this now. And maybe, maybe, Gonzalo, we can do it again sure. in a week or so. Yeah, it would be lovely. It would be, yeah. I, I, I mean, if you, if you kind ladies don't mind me ranting like a madman, sure. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Keep ranting, yeah. Gonzalo. We love to listen. So, uh, so that, that's not a problem. But you have to uh, stay safe now. And and uh, you know, I mean, I know that your yeah. situation is a little bit precarious in in hot give. So uh, yeah, it's, it's the problem I'm having for your audience who, who might not know. The the problem is that uh, the um, the Zelensky regime is lashing out at any dissidents. Uh, they've assassinated um, several mayors, uh, mayors whose name I can tell you, like in, yeah. the mayor of Lemina, a town of 18,000, a mayor called uh, Volodymyr Struk, S-T-R-U-K. He was assassinated uh, almost at the beginning of the war. One of the negotiators that, that, the, that the Zelensky regime had uh, was assassinated. Um, MMA fighters, I mean, they even assassinated a TikToker yesterday. Uh, yeah. They had him do a video confession, then they whisked him away, and the word today is that he's dead. Um, right. And so what happened was that um, the Zelensky regime goons um, seem to have taken an interest in me. And so my situation is a bit precarious here. Right. Yeah. But um, that's all, all, all good and fine. You know, I'm a, I'm a big boy and I can look after myself, so it's no big deal. But, um, you know, the, the situation here is very uh, complex. Let's right. put it that way. Yeah. Indeed. Before we go, I just want to tell you that uh, Zelensky is speaking to the Swedish parliament tomorrow. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I hope that your, your, your parliament will, you know, tell him to take his story elsewhere because it's, it's just a pack of lies. Okay? Right. No, they won't. It's just a complete pack of lies. You know, I'm that, sure that, that's the thing. I'm sure he'll get standing ovations like he did in, in Congress and, and everywhere else except Israel. That didn't go too well, from what I understand. No, no it, it, yeah, it didn't go too well. And what's interesting is that everybody gives him standing ovations, but they don't give him uh, soldiers. True. Which is, frankly, the important thing. True. You know, because we don't want this to widen. That, that's the thing that we want to prevent at all costs. Because I if agree. it widens, then all of 
the West and everything that has taken centuries to build is going to be at risk. And that is something that we should never allow. That's my thinking. Yeah, I agree. Take care, Gonzalo, and uh, talk to you soon again, I hope. Yeah, it's been <laughs> lovely. Maria, Ingrid, you take care. And yep. to your audience, thank you very much for listening. And I will see you next time. Thank Bye-bye. you. God, and God bless you. God bless. Bye. Thank you. Bye.